0: it really is a
1: disgrace everything about the last four years has been a disgrace 23 days left 23 days left
2: 23. well i don't know why i came here tonight i got the feeling there's something right i'm so scared in case i fall off my chair to the right, here I
1: am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE, Eureka. In Oregon, K-Y-A-Q on the Central Coast, KSO and Cottage Grove, K-E-P-W and Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, Nicole Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk blanketing the globe five days a week. There are 23 days left until inauguration day of January 20th, nine days until Joe Biden's Electoral College defeat of Donald Trump will be affirmed, or not, by Congress. Eight days until the final day for Georgians to cast their votes in the state's two critical, ongoing U.S. Senate runoff elections to determine control of the United States Senate. Again, that happens January 5th. Early voting now underway. Ah, This is the Bradcast, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, once again, you got me. I am Nicole Sandler. I'm host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at nicolesandler.com, and occasionally step in and help out Brad and Desi when they need some time off. And this week, they are taking some well-deserved downtime. So I'm here mostly to fill you in on what happens, if there's any new news. And, oh boy, (laughs) over the Christmas holiday, we had quite a few things happen. So we'll start right there in just a moment. But let me tell you what's coming up on the show today. With so many Americans hurting, and at press time, the amount of money we'll be getting from the government in COVID relief is still up in the air. We'll talk about what the United States government can do. If you listen to the Republicans, we're going to be broke. You know, the same people who increased the deficit by an inordinate amount in order to give tax breaks to billionaires are now balking that we can't afford to give Americans a one time payment of $2,000 to help get us over the roughest stretch in most of our lives we will speak with economist and expert on modern monetary theory, Stephanie Kelton. And she'll tell you, it's not an issue, it's no problem. Of course, we can not only afford it, helping Americans through this crisis is a necessity. Stephanie Kelton, in addition to being an economist and an author, is also a professor at Stony Brook University, and I could see why her students love her, because I am far from an economist, believe me. But Stephanie Kelton has a way in both her book and in talking such that even I can understand what she's saying. So that's a feat in and of itself. So I encourage you stick around. We've got Stephanie Kelton coming up in just a few minutes. But first, let's get to the news, starting with bringing you up to date on what's happened in the last few days. As he has done repeatedly throughout his four-year term, Donald Trump took a bad situation and made it exponentially worse, then swooped in to save the day from the problem he created in the first place. The good news is that the final episode of this devastating reality show turned real life is just 23 days away. To recap, late Monday, December 21st, Congress passed a $900 billion pandemic relief package, along with a $1.4 trillion omnibus spending bill to keep the government funded through the end of the fiscal year in September. It sped through Congress in a few hours. Despite the fact that the bill was about 5,600 pages long, the longest ever, and no one really had a chance to read it, it passed in the Senate 92 to six in the House 359 to 53. But on Tuesday, instead of signing the bill, Donald Trump released a video calling it a disgrace and demanding changes. That payment checks be for $2,000 instead of 600 and also cuts to programs included in the funding portion of the package seeming to conflate the two parts of the massive bill. Keep in mind that in the seven weeks since the election, Trump had been missing in action seeming only to care about his propaganda campaign alleging that the election had been stolen from him. So on Wednesday, December 23rd, Trump vetoed the National Defense Authorization Act, ostensibly for two reasons. One, it would require the military rename bases that were originally named after figures from the Confederacy. And two, because it doesn't include a repeal of Section 230, That's a law that shields social media companies from liability for what's posted on their sites by them or third parties. Then Trump boarded Air Force One to leave the White House and spend Christmas in Florida at his Mar-a-Lago resort, leaving the nation in limbo. To reiterate, while most of the country is suffering waiting for help through what is the worst crisis in our lives. Donald Trump was sitting on relief checks, unemployment benefits, and rental aid from the comfort of his Mar-a-Lago resort in Palm Beach, Florida. Vice President Mike Pence went on a skiing vacation to Vail, Colorado. And Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin took a private jet down to his vacation home in a Mexican resort near Cabo. Got it? Okay. On Thursday, Christmas Eve, the finalized bill that included the COVID-19 relief measure and omnibus spending bill, together known as the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, or CAA, was sent to Florida for Trump's signature, where it sat. Although we later learned that the staff had set up a ballroom for a signing ceremony to happen Thursday night, Christmas Eve, that Trump subsequently canceled. Because he didn't sign it before midnight on Saturday night, pandemic relief programs expired, meaning more than 12 million Americans who relied on them will likely experience a blip in aid. Unemployment compensation and federal enhancement payments will be shortened by a week as they are reinstated, and there may be a break in payments of several weeks while state agencies reprogram their computers. But luckily, the benefits are retroactive. So, the impetuous child playing president held his breath till his face turned blue and then relented and signed the bill on Sunday night and got nothing out of it other than a few days of attention and more chaos. He issued a toothless signing statement saying that Congress will review Section 230. That's the part dealing with the social media company's liability. They'll investigate voter fraud and the Senate will vote on $2,000 checks. He said that Senate leaders had committed to a vote, but Mitch McConnell hasn't acknowledged that commitment. Anyway, Trump said he'd be sending a redlined version of the legislation back to Congress, showing lawmakers which wasteful items he wants removed. Democrats already said they'll just ignore his changes. And that brings us to Monday morning, December 28th. And the status of the NDAA is still up in the air. The House returns to take up Trump's directive to change the amount of the checks being sent to individuals from $600 to $2,000, and they'll also vote on overriding Trump's veto of the National Defense Authorization Act. And remember, both the House and Senate passed the $740 billion NDAA with veto-proof majorities. But House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has said that many Republicans won't vote to override, potentially putting the bill's fate in doubt. If the House gets the two-thirds majority necessary to keep it alive, the Senate will then come back to vote on Tuesday. It would be the first time Congress has overridden one of Trump's vetoes. And at deadline time on Monday afternoon, as I'm putting the finishing touches on this program, the House of Representatives just voted at Donald Trump's request to boost stimulus checks to $2,000 per person. Uh, The bill passed a 275 to 134 vote. It needed a two-thirds majority under the procedures that were used for consideration. And as I'm recording this, the House is now voting on the bill to override Donald Trump's veto of the National Defense Authorization Act. The voting is slow going because many members did not return from their Christmas break. They are taking advantage of the new rule that allows voting by proxy. And because a member has to stand up and verbally cast the votes for the members who are absent, it takes a long time. But at this point in the voting, with zero minutes left on the clock, but they're still voting because it's time consuming, here's where it stands. There are 193 yay votes, 101 from Democrats, 92 from Republicans, 63 nay votes votes three from Democrats, 59 from Republicans, and 174 members still have not yet voted. But 193 to 63, it's looking like they just might hit that two-thirds vote they need to override Donald Trump's veto of the National Defense Authorization Act. Again, I can give you a million reasons that the NDAA shouldn't pass that they need to cut billions of dollars from the bloated military budget. But the reasons Donald Trump is is pushing to, the, you know, the reasons he gave to uh, veto this, this legislation are just ridiculous. That's the technical term. So we'll have the final numbers for you on tomorrow's episode. And I'm not sure what time the Senate will convene to have these votes. We either will or will not have the answers for you at the end of Tuesday's program. But that's why we're doing a show on Wednesday as well. There's a method to our madness. In other news, stop the insanity. Those words, in all caps, are emblazoned across the front page of the New York Post on Monday. Yeah, the Rupert Murdoch-owned tabloid that's been a reliable Trump ally all along tore into Trump in an editorial describing him as an insane and tragic King Lear figure who's so angry and obsessed over his election defeat that he's threatening to destroy his own presidential legacy. What legacy? Uh, In its editorial, the paper writes, quote, We understand, Mr. President, that you're angry that you lost. But to continue down this road is ruinous. We offer this as a newspaper that endorsed you. That supported you. It then urges Trump to focus his anger on the Georgia Senate runoffs, saying that if he helps to secure the Senate, it will also secure his legacy. But warns, "Quote: If you insist on spending your final days in office to burn it all down, that will be how you are remembered—not as a revolutionary, but as the anarchist holding the match." So now Trump will head to Georgia for a rally in support of Loeffler and Perdue next Monday, the day before the January 5th runoff election. We've now learned that a large blast that shook downtown Nashville early Christmas morning was the work of a suicide bomber. Federal authorities said on Sunday that DNA evidence had shown that Anthony Quinn Warner, the Tennessee man described as the suspect in the bombing, died in the blast. The 63-year-old Warner worked as an independent computer technician at a real estate firm. Federal agents searched his house where he had kept an RV like the one that exploded in the bombing. Before the explosion, a speaker system in the RV broadcast a warning to evacuate the area. Three people were injured in the blast, but only Warner died. Investigators are still trying to determine a motive for the bombing, which occurred outside an AT&T facility and damaged regional phone and Internet coverage. And finally... December marked the deadliest month in the United States since the coronavirus pandemic began, with more than 63,000 COVID-19 deaths recorded nationwide during the month so far. This according to Johns Hopkins University. April held the previous monthly record for the highest number of COVID-19 deaths when it was reported that at least 55,000 people had died. This resurgence is one of the reasons why the New Year's Eve ball will drop in Times Square, but without the crowds. For the first time, the New Year's event in Times Square will be closed to the public due to the coronavirus pandemic. But you can still watch it on television. Okay, one more quick check before we go to a break. Um, The vote now stands at press time. 2.32 yay, 69 nay, 129 still to vote. We'll take a quick timeout, come back on the other side with economist and modern monetary theory expert, Stephanie Kelton. And I promise she'll explain it so you can understand it. Because if I can understand it, you can understand it. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast.
2: Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. Be back.
1: Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, in for Brad and Desi while they finish out the year unplugging and de-stressing before the final sprint to January 20th and the end of the Trump regime, we hope. Unfortunately, despite Donald Trump's lies about creating the best economy in history, wrong on so many levels, The opposite is actually true. He is leaving us teetering on the edge of a complete financial collapse due to his complete dereliction of duties in the face of a global pandemic. So with millions of Americans losing their paltry government assistance the day after Christmas because Trump has been playing golf literally and figuratively, instead of doing his job, and as Republicans gladly take massive tax cuts for the very wealthy but refuse to provide assistance to the millions falling into poverty through no fault of their own, I called on Stephanie Kelton to answer some questions. Stephanie Kelton is an economist, a professor at Stony Brook University, and a leading authority on modern monetary theory. Her latest book, The Deficit Myth... Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy is really a must-read for everyone right now, given our current situation. She had been mired down in grading papers and finally finished in time to speak with me just a few days ago. It was Wednesday, the 23rd of December, Christmas Eve. Eve. You finally finished grading all your papers. You're done for the semester and uh, you're, you're on your own for the holidays now, or sort of, kind of, Stephanie Kelton? Listen, yes, uh,
0: it's the, it's the best feeling when you uh, get through the finals and all the grades have been uploaded, and you just uh, you know reach that point. So, yes, I got there yesterday, just just in the nick of time. You know, always come in right under the deadline, and then there's that just sigh of relief. So, yeah, now it's just uh, a, a winter break. Kids are home with us now for a little bit of a stretch, and. We'll see what happens with the pandemic and whether there's some in-person schooling or, you know, you never know, um, given them the numbers and the way this, the district might respond. But we're together.
1: That Well, and that's the important thing. And it's good yeah. that you can be together because, uh, you know, a lot of families can't be right now. But um, this is this is what we have to go through. So hopefully next year we will be able to be with uh, bigger gatherings and, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to get out of 2020, because this has just been an insane year. So um, anyway, uh, Stephanie Kelton is here to talk about things other than the pandemic. And and actually, um, uh, as a professor, you teach uh, economics and public policy at Stony Brook University on Long Island. Your latest book is uh, the deficit myth got it right here. Modern monetary theory and the birth of the people 's economy oh we 've got a screenshot up there. Um, you are one of the leading authorities on modern monetary theory if and and I always talk about you as somebody who is able to explain economic policy in a way that even I can understand. And, and that's saying a lot because, I, as I've said often, the only thing I'm good at with money is spending it. But if you had to explain to somebody who didn't know, you say MMT, they say, what is that? How do you explain it to them?
0: Oh, telling the truth about the way our monetary system works and the mechanics of government finance, what government can afford and why and how it all works. Um, and, you know, I mean, the book is called The Deficit Myth. Mm-hmm. I think we've probably talked about this before that, you know, even though there, it's the singular in the title, The Deficit Myth, that it, there isn't just one myth. There are a slew of myths and misconceptions and misunderstandings. And I think sometimes just outright lies about the way that um, the monetary system works, right? Mm -hmm. Why is the federal government different from the rest of us? What makes it possible for Congress to spin out multi-trillion dollar spending bills At a time when the economy, the bottom is falling out of the economy, when governors and mayors can't do that, when businesses can't do that, when struggling families and workers can't just come up with money. How is it that the federal government, everybody's pointing their finger at Congress and saying you have to do something? Why? What is it about Congress that makes it uniquely capable of discharging right of putting dollars out there and getting them into the hands of struggling businesses and families and so forth when the rest of us don't have any money where's it all coming from So this book attempts to kind of get at the answer to help people understand why the federal government isn't like the rest of us. The first chapter of the book is called Don't Think of a Household, because we're constantly told, you know, well, the government's got to balance its budget. It can't just run these deficits all the time. This is irresponsible. And so it just tries to break through many of the myths and misunderstandings and give people a, a better understanding of. You
1: know how it all works. One thing I've learned in following politics for the last few decades is when they are in power, deficits and the national debt doesn't seem to matter to them. But when a Democrat is in the White House. Then that's all they, they care about. Then all of a sudden, it's like, we can't spend any money. The deficit, the debt. And in fact, we saw that during these Trump years, uh, they passed this huge tax break for billionaires, uh, to the tune of well over a trillion dollars. That was no problem. But now we're in the middle of this pandemic. People are hurting like never before, certainly not in my lifetime. And, and there are comparisons saying that, you know, this could be, worse than the great depression when all was said and done it may even be coming close to that now we don't really know um but but some of the republicans balked at at more of re- more relief for the american people because of well the debt the deficit what do you say to them
0: well, I mean you know is first of all you're right they're complete hypocrites when it comes to this kind of stuff they always have been um, they understand what I think too often Democrats don't understand, which is the deficit is your friend, right? Embrace it. Use it. Don't complain about it. Well, they're complaining about it now because, you know, for political reasons. But you're absolutely right, because in 2017, the end of 2017, in December, the Republicans pushed these massive tax cuts, right? And it those tax cuts will end up adding an estimated call it 2 trillion to deficits over the course of a decade. Okay, that's the estimated cost. Now, why would Republicans push tax cuts that massively increase deficits, add to the debt if they genuinely are concerned about these things like burdening the next generation and the dangers of deficits? And the answer is they are genuinely concerned. They understand what the deficit is. And so I think too many people don't understand what the deficit is. And Democrats don't really do a very good job of educating the population. Too often they lean into these myths and that just reinforces a lot of the bad narratives. So look, the deficit is the difference between two numbers. You say I I break stuff down. I can't make it any easier than this. (laughs) Uh The deficit is the difference between two numbers. Okay. One of the numbers is how many dollars the government spends into the economy each year. The other number is how many dollars the government swipes back out, subtracts out of the economy, mostly through taxation. Okay, so difference between two numbers. When the government's budget is in deficit, it simply means they are adding more than they're subtracting away. Okay, Mm -hmm. so if they spend 100 into the economy and they only tax 90 away, we label it a deficit. We say the government's budget is in deficit. We write a minus 10 on the ledger and we say government deficit. Scary. Wait a minute. If they put 100 in and they only take 90 back out, somebody gets 10, right? Their deficit is nothing more than a financial contribution to some other part of the economy. The question is for whom, who got that 10, right? Because when the Republicans did the tax cuts, they know this, they know that their deficit can create a financial windfall for somebody else in the economy. And what they do is use that deficit to deliver the gains right into the hands of the people they're most interested in looking out for. And it turns out those are the people who least need the help in our society, right? The vast majority of the benefits from those tax cuts, some 83% of the benefits of the personal income tax cuts went to people in the top 1% of the income distribution. So they are channeling that surplus that their deficit creates into the hands of the people They want to have that money. Now look at the CARES Act. Here's a roughly $2 trillion. So they're almost equivalent in terms, right, of of the cost of the legislation. But the CARES Act was more strategic about where that money went to the unemployed, um, to middle class and low income workers, right, to small businesses. Now, I'm not arguing that every dollar that was spent was strategically placed into the hands of the people who at least needed the help, but I'm saying it did a much better job. It prevented some 18 million Americans from slipping into poverty. So it was, you know, a different way of using deficits. But as I like to say, every deficit is good for someone. The question is for whom?
1: <laughs> right. You know, uh, uh, Stephanie Kelton, by the way, you can follow on Twitter at Stephanie Kelton. Very easy. And uh, and I do. And I, I was looking at your Twitter feed yesterday and Marsha Blackburn, one of the more reprehensible senators uh, on the Republican side of the aisle, tweeted, Increasing the federal deficit and spending money we do not have will harm our economic recovery. You retweeted that and responded to her. And you said taking a break from grading econ finals to grade this tweet an F. Spending money you don't have is literally how Congress gets money to people who don't have any. Your deficit, your deficit is our financial surplus. Increasing the deficit will help the recovery. What why don't they understand that? Why doesn't she understand that? I think she does. I think this is just politics,
0: Mm. right? Again, they understand it when they're the ones running the deficit Mm. and and those dollars are being channeled into the hands of the people they're looking out for. But God forbid somebody stand up and say we ought to mail checks and provide direct cash assistance to middle class and lower income people. God forbid we say the unemployed ought to have some more time on unemployment to draw unemployment benefits (laughs) and to have the federal government top those up because it's insufficient and too many people are going to be, you know, lined up to get food, missing more rent payments, right? Not able to pay their utilities and so forth. So God forbid we stand up and say that. And then all of a sudden the deficit is back in play. Everybody is worried where we can't spend money we don't have. Well, sure we can. That's exactly how it always works. You, you know, the, the votes fund the, the spending. That's where the money comes from. So you remember I, uh, Nicole, I know that you remember that back in May, the House passed the HEROES Act. Oh, yes, Right? Yep. I, the House passed the HEROES Act. This was $3 trillion plus that the House was prepared to move on. They passed it out of the House. Mitch McConnell wouldn't touch it. Right. So the the Republicans were not interested at that point in doing more. They were trying to convince themselves that somehow the recovery had taken hold, that the CARES Act did all that was really necessary and the economy was going to recover. And and we didn't need more fiscal support. Well, the House disagreed and Democrats said, no, we want to do another three trillion or so. And what what I'm saying is, had the Senate passed that bill, three trillion more would have gone out right? It's the votes that fund the spending. So all of this tweeting by Senator Blackburn and and Rand Paul was out there the Uh other day saying we're out of money. We've run out. You know, the cupboards are bare. All of this is just nonsense. The reality is if they will vote for it, It triggers the spending. The money will go out. All you have to do is find the votes. They pretend like we're on a gold standard. They say, how do you find the money? Well, what are you doing? Looking under the seat cushions? Are you looking in a hole in the ground for, you know, some some precious metals or something like it doesn't work that way? They print it.
1: Right. That's how it works. We print the money. Is that that's it? Yes. I mean, I, I, I try not to use
0: that language because it conjures into people's minds images literally of, you know, money being rolled off of the printing press. <laughs> right. right. So, you know, this is the modern era after all. So when Congress wrote the CARES Act, That bill was $2.2 trillion, right? And that was Congress writing down a set of instructions that go to its bank. Its bank is the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is the government's fiscal agent. So when Congress passed the CARES Act, what it was doing is effectively saying to the Fed, get ready. We just ordered up $2.2 trillion dollars. You're going to make the payments on behalf of Treasury. We authorize those payments. And the reality is that's where the money comes from. It comes out of the keyboard. Really, frankly, it is creating digital dollars. This is the modern era. So when government spends, it results in a credit to a bank account. And this is handled, you know, via keystrokes, um, I I mean, I know it sounds almost fantastical, but that's the reality of modern government finance. And that's where the money is coming from.
1: Gotcha. So so let's look at the big picture. We, the United States of America, believe it or not. We're the wealthiest nation on the planet, including Saudi Arabia and the UAE and all those oil rich nations. We are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. Um, And we're being told we can't afford it. Um, Our government, since this pandemic began in addition to unemployment benefits and things like that, well, people like me can't access that. Self-employed uh, entrepreneurs, uh, uh, allegedly we're supposed to, but here in Florida, <laughs> it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I- I've gotten a $1,200 check from the government to help out, one $1,200 check. I look at these charts that are everywhere of what other countries did for their People. Germany, 87 percent of one salary for the duration Canada 2,000 dollars a month to the unemployed. it goes on and on the UK 85 percent of uh, salary most countries do this a percentage of your normal income for the duration there was somebody I saw a thing from somebody in New Zealand said, this little country they've, been, they've given us 600 dollars a week until we could all go back to work. The United States can't do that and we can they just choose not to. Is that the, is that the bottom line?
0: Well, okay. So a couple of things. One is it's, um, it, I think it's a little misleading because what the government did in the CARES Act was actually in some cases to more than replace more than a hundred percent of lost income, right? For some people, Because yeah. you, you get your state unemployment benefits and then the federal government came in and said, we're going to give you an extra $600 a week right. on up of what you're getting from the state now for some workers and not a trivial sum for some workers that more than made them whole yes but for, for many many americans for the first time in their adult lives they had enough money at the end of the month there wasn't a bill that didn't get paid they could actually cover all of their expenses and so we did for many workers replace not just the lost income but even a little bit more so you know it depends what you were making before what kind of job Job you lost in your replacement rate and so forth. But we did do this. OK, mm-hmm. in the CARES Act, we did replace in some cases 100 uh, percent or more of lost income. Now we're down to cutting that. The proposal now is to cut that back by 50 percent. Right. To go right. To 300 top up from the federal government. That's going to leave a lot of people short. It, it will put them well below Uh, Full replacement or eighty percent of lost wages, as you just showed in some other countries. And when you say, you know, couldn't we do better? The answer is sure we could. Again, if Congress writes the bill, the the dollars go out. All they have to do is decide how much, right? How much income support and for how long? And other countries, as you rightly point out, have done a better job. Um, You know, we we limited everything was kind of contingent on you know a period of time thinking, well, the pandemic is not going to last all that long. You know, we're (laughs) going to get to the other side. There won't be a second wave. The economy will begin to recover and so forth. And so we underestimated the length of time that we would be fighting this pandemic and the economic fallout that goes with it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the things timed out, you know, they were set to expire. And that's why we're back where we are.
1: Right. So so we could do it. Um, That's the thing. Now, let me ask the other question about the impact it would have on the economy if the government were to say, give every citizen $6,000 $6,000 rather than $600, would it impact inflation or cause like a devaluation of our currency on the world market? Would it be detrimental to our economy or would it be a good stimulative?
0: It's going it, to, it's going to be a good stimulus for those who turn around and spend it. It's going to be a lifeline. So yes. there's a tension between using the term relief and using the term stimulus. Like, right. If you are six months behind on your rent, And you're about to be evicted and you've got utilities and rent that's been deferred, right? You've been allowed to miss those payments without having your electricity shut off, Mm -hmm. without being thrown out of your apartment. But the moratoria is expiring and you owe all of that money. Now, if somebody sends you $6,000, and by the way, it's an interesting number that you chose because we know that there are about 13 million people in this country who are behind, months behind Mm -hmm. on rent and utilities, and the average amount that they will owe by January is 5,800 bucks. Wow. So you hand them $6,000 and they hand it right off in order to, you know, pay those, those, um, those debts that have built up on them. So that's not, I wouldn't call that stimulus. That's a lifeline. Yeah. That allows you to not be homeless. Right. And to have the heat on in your place and to have a place to stay during a pandemic. Uh, But for some people, it is going to be stimulus because it's going to be that little bit of extra money that allowed you to go out and make Christmas a reality for the kids. Mm -hmm. Right. Or to get some new school supplies. And if we're going to have kids back at home, maybe somebody needs a tablet or other sort of, you know, uh, Wi-Fi connectivity or or things like that. So um, there's going to be some of each that six thousand dollars. The question about inflation is. You know, are would that push things too far? Would it be too much to send everyone six thousand dollars? And the only way to know is to run that experiment. But the reality is the economy is so depressed right now that, you know, it seems to me the the risk of creating an inflation problem by putting six thousand dollars into the hands of people, most of whom would turn around, at least many of them and just stay current on bills. And I call that churn. And right. the rest of it might buy some actual goods and services. And that part is stimulus. So, no, I don't think there's um, a lot of risk associated. When If inflation went up, it wouldn't go up a whole lot. And quite frankly, the Fed would probably appreciate some assistance because they can't seem to hit their own two percent inflation target, so they'd
1: like to see inflation move a little bit higher. Wow! So this is this is all fascinating, and in fact, I look back to like two thousand eight and the uh, the the mortgage crisis, um, and I'm still, frankly, digging out from that, or not digging. I'm stuck from that. I lost my home back in two thousand eight during all of that. Uh, I lost my job during that, um, and it's been it's been a rough go ever since. And I. Think I think I asked you this once before, but my thought was always, why the hell did we bail out the banks? The same amount of money, if they had funneled it through people like me, homeowners, and said this money is to be used to pay down your mortgage, it would have gone to the bank, but it would have come through us and we would have gotten relief in the, in the meantime. I am a, a layperson. I am not an economist. I know nothing about this, but that seemed to make sense to me. Is there an it did it doesn't make sense to you? And is there an analogy here?
0: Yeah, you. Of course, it makes sense. You're you're absolutely right. We, uh, we, uh, you know, the administration uh, did not put its focus on the homeowners in this case, and as a result, millions and millions of people like you, lost their homes and are still not recovered from yep. that more than a decade later. Yeah. So tragic, right? There, this was a crisis driven by fraud in the mortgage market. There's no question about that. So, you know, we could go back and talk about all of the things that lenders and appraisers and rating agencies and did to, you know, create the conditions that allowed the subprime mortgage crisis to um, develop over time. But, you know, it was based on fraud fraud. And there should have been punishment. People should have gone to jail. There should have been cram downs for uh, the lenders. You know, the mortgages should have been written down. People should have been kept in their homes. I mean, that was the right way to to deal with the crisis. We did not do that. Um, Are there lessons here? Yes. I mean, it's Main Street. And I think think that uh, Democrats have improved in terms of the response to this, that there is when I talk with, you know, lawmakers, they seem um, quite sensitive to the, you know, the reality of the backlash. If if there's a perception that we're not looking after Main Street again this time, there's going to be a real problem. And so I think that's what you're seeing with so many lawmakers. And it is true that you've gotten, you know, uh, a number of of newly elected uh, progressive members of Congress Mm -hmm. who have pushed some really ambitious uh, legislation in the form of they don't just want a one-off payment of $2,000. They want no. recurring payments until the crisis is over. You wouldn't have had anything like that 10 years ago. I don't know who, I don't know where it would have come from, frankly. Um, so there is more sensitivity to, you know, uh, the plight of Main Street and the pain and, and an understanding. I think, honestly, that if they don't get this right, that the midterms you yeah. know you're at risk of losing the house, and then you you can be you know you can look uh, four years ahead and say what what happens right as a, uh, as a party if we don't get this right again.
1: Given the Democrats' track record, I'm not feeling too confident about that. Economist, professor, and author of the Deficit Myth, Stephanie Kelton is our guest. Coming up, she'll tie it all together with our current situation and explain what we absolutely can and should do to help people through the most dire situation in our lifetimes. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on The broadcast. <laughs> Up to the sun,
2: brick and rivet and lime, once I built a tower, now it's done, brother,
1: can you spare a dime? I'm Nicole Sandler, in today for Brad and Desi as they rest up and regroup over the holidays. I'm speaking with economist and modern monetary theory proponent Stephanie Kelton. In the first part of the interview, we discussed modern monetary theory, MMT, and what our government can do to help us. Now, let's talk specifics. I know Bernie Sanders called on you. You were an advisor when he headed up um, the Senate Finance Committee. Or was the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee? Budget budget Committee. Budget Committee. Sorry. Um, Does Joe Biden get this? Does he understand any of this? And has he consulted you at all?
0: Well, I mean, I served as one of eight members of the uh, task force on the economy. It was the unity task force. I was there uh, at the behest of Senator Sanders, mm-hmm. who chose three people uh, to serve on that committee. And we worked with five members of uh, the task force who were Biden's pick. So eight of us together and. Um, you know, I I worked alongside the economist, Derek Hamilton, who's outstanding, and Sarah Nelson, who's, of course, the head of the uh, Flight Attendance Association Union. Oh, like, right. Uh, right. Great. And um, and so, you know, you, you, I'm not exactly sure what you're asking when you say, does he get <laughs> this, what the this is. But if the question is, do they understand kind of the magnitude of the crisis that they're walking into? I think so. I mean, you will hear um, President-elect Biden say things like, you know, I walked in with uh, President Obama, the wheels were coming off the economy. It was a complete, you know, crisis situation. And here we are again. And so I think he does understand. And remember, you know, Nicole, he wasn't just talking about um, a, a relief package and he said it again In his remarks yesterday he's talking about This 900 billion being a down payment Right he said, true back in another Month get ready because I want To see additional fiscal support And then beyond that he's talking About a recovery package So when FDR was president you know he had The three R's you have Relief for the immediate crisis, you have recovery to lay a foundation for, you know, uh, restoring jobs and, and growth and so forth. And then he had reform because he wanted to really go at the system and some of the systemic failures. So, you know, uh, president like Biden is talking about the recovery part of all of this. And he's talking about, you know, $2 trillion for climate. He's talking about $700 billion for manufacturing. He's talking about $775 billion for education and child care and and basically, you know, a care uh, agenda. So that's pretty ambitious, I have to say. And we'll just have to see how Georgia plays out to see (laughs) whether, you know, there's any shot at all at, you know, even – even getting some of the way there on on this kind of stuff.
1: Right. So it all comes down to January 6th and January 5th. And what happens in Georgia? I asked the question because David Sirota wrote a piece yesterday. Biden's austerity zealotry helped cut the stimulus bill in half. And I know that there's that tendency. And I hope he understands the enormity of it. And, and, you, you know, the theories behind modern monetary theory, actually. So. Uh, I, I, it's wishful thinking, but hopefully he, oh, no. I mean a- he,
0: you know, you've got people there uh, who are on his economic team. I mean, you know, I know that there were a couple of appointments just last week that were very encouraging to me. I don't want to get anybody in any trouble, uh-huh. but um, these are people who definitely have more than a Uh, cursory kind of uh, appreciation of MMT. There are, you know, people in the Council of Economic Advisors. Jared Bernstein Mm -hmm. was on the task force with us, and I've known Jared for a lot of years. I'm not going to say that Jared is, uh, you know, aligned with MMT. I wouldn't do that to him, but uh, he can speak for himself. But I can tell you that there are plenty of people who have already been named to positions that I think do have a pretty solid understanding. And more than more than that, they understand that, you know, if this administration is going to be successful, it has to go big and it cannot do, you know, incremental kinds of things and expect to be successful in the midterms and expect to be successful in twenty twenty four. You've got to deliver for people. You have to deliver. People have to know not just what you're fighting for, but who you're fighting for. And you've got to stand up and put an agenda out there and fight for an agenda that is clearly a, a working people's agenda. I mean, the subtitle of the book is Building a People's Economy. This has mm-hmm. to be, It has to be clear to voters every day that you are out there and you are, um, you know, you're doing every single thing you can to get the votes you need to pass an agenda that's going to materially improve People's lives. Oh, please!
1: I mean, that's that's what we need, especially after the four years we've just had. In the couple of minutes we have left, I I had promoted the fact that you were going to be here today, and I was excited to get some answers. I have a few questions for you, uh, and I'll combine these two. If the defense budget was cut by, say, a third, what effect would the ensuing reduction in troop levels have on the jobs market? And I'll say not only the troop levels, but, um, you know, uh, contractors, the uh, you know, the weapons programs and stuff. That's that is a socialist job program. Is it not our military budget?
0: Look, GDP, our, when we talk about our economy, you know, we usually just use for shorthand our, our GDP because our GDP is sort of the way that we measure the economy. Mm-hmm. So, look, GDP is just how much money we spend every year buying newly produced goods and services. So anything you do that undermines income that leads to lower spending in the economy is going to have detrimental effects on that measure. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't benefits associated mm. with making reductions in certain line items of the budget, but you've got to offset that. You've got to replace that lost income and lost spending or the output doesn't get sold and the economy contracts.
1: It you create, create jobs in, in a sure. green economy in and in a green New Deal, as it were, right?
0: I mean, look, i I am an Air Force rep. My father was in the uh, in the Air Force. He spent twenty six years in the military. We moved all over the place. You know, I remember what happens in a community when a base closes. Right. It's mm-hmm. the pizza parlor and the video used to be a blockbuster. Yeah. Right. You know, there's nobody to go there. There's it, so it does have implications. Right. For reductions in spending. And so it's not to say, you know, it's too dangerous to cut the Pentagon budget. That would be a disaster. No, I'm saying just be mindful that when you make reductions in some part of the budget, you're reducing some by reducing your spending, you're reducing someone else's income and you better have a plan to you know, that's what we talk about with a green new deal. Right? right? If you're going to reduce subsidies to fossil fuel companies, and you're going to uh, you know ban fracking or do these other things, you got to have a plan for the people who are going to become unemployed as a consequence of these sort of things. So you need a jobs program that is aggressive with good wages and benefits, and and you can more than compensate.
1: Right. And that's where the Green New Deal would come in right now. And that sort of uh, steamrolls into the next one, which was uh, what would cutting corporate subsidies do in terms of productivity? Could it cause companies to consider moving more of their operations overseas? Um, but uh, again, if uh, our corporate subsidies happen, so much of it, I think, is in the way of tax breaks. When you see that Amazon and Google and all, and, and all these companies don't pay any federal corporate income tax, it's appalling. Um, can we fix that and and save money that way and, and use it in a more productive manner?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, yes, the tax code is a mess. And there are all kinds of problems in terms of the way that we incentivize businesses to uh, do business elsewhere and so forth. And that's part of the problem. Yes. Um, you know, can we the the thing is businesses will hire and invest when they're swamped with customers it's not because we throw them a bone in the form of an extra way to make a tax deduction here and a and a loophole there and this is the way to get the 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 so-called job creators you know um to, remaining here and creating good paying jobs for Americans and so forth, they will stay and they will hire and invest in an economy where there is robust demand for the goods and services that they produce. And what that means is you need a middle class that has income, not stagnant income over 30 years, but growing income, right? You need to have consumers for your products and businesses can stay and be very profitable right here in America. But we've got an income and wealth distribution problem in this country that, um, undermines, right, the ability of the American consumer, which makes up some 70 percent of total spending in the economy, to actually, you know, buy the products that our companies are uh, looking
1: to produce and sell. Um, Last question for you, Stephanie Kelton. And I'm I'm worried I see us going into a deep depression. And if this uh, if people go about their holiday business as usual, um, I I hate to see what this country is going to look like a month from now, as bad as it is now following Thanksgiving. It's going to be exponentially worse. Um, I live in Florida, where we have a governor that I call his name is Ron DeSantis. I call him Ron death sentence because he wants everything opened at 100 percent. He wants bars, schools, everything. No mask mandates. Not a, a town can't even put in a mask mandate. He's ruled against that. He wants no uh, uh, telemeetings. He wants everything done. In per I mean, he's going against the grain and our infection rates and death rates are rising. Uh, people are going to be out of work. Even worse, the lines for, for food banks and everything are ridiculous. They're running out of it, out of money, out of food to, to hand out. I see a Great Depression in our future. Maybe I'm just a pessimist. Do you, do you see a recovery coming? Do you see any end to this? Or what, what are you, I mean, I know I'm asking you to predict the future, but as an economist, what do you see our standing as? Where do you see us going in the next year?
0: You know, I, uh, I wrote a new introduction to the book about two and a half months ago. Mm. And so I did have to do some of this prognosticating, like, where are we going to be? The book is going to publish, I think on March 9th or 19th or something
1: like okay, that. Okay. For the paperback. There's yeah.
0: new inter- There's this new introduction, right? And I wanted it to feel timely, but at the same time, you don't know where you don't know where you're going to be in March. So much of it depends upon what Congress does. Right. Mm -hmm. We staved off a Great Depression like scenario with the CARES Act and some of the other legislation that was passed in the early part of the pandemic. And then Congress went AWOL. Just yeah. like they did in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. After right. the first stimulus package, it was sort of like hands off. We're not, we're not doing any more of this, right? Everybody became preoccupied with the deficit and so forth. And so, if we were to get adequate fiscal support, then there's no reason to suppose that the economy has to turn down. You know, we had this bifurcated, uneven recovery. People were describing it as a K-shaped recovery. You right. think of the letter right. K, right? Oh, yeah. where many Many big corporations and higher income people hardly felt the effects. I mean, and, and, and in fact, they're getting richer, them, right? Yes. Got richer. So for them, this was a quick recovery. But for a significant number, tens of millions of workers, this was like a depression already. Right. But for the income support that came for the unemployed and but for that twelve hundred dollar check and so forth. So we we helped hold it together, we got to the point where it started to look like a recovery, uneven, bifurcated, but still, right, we weren't just spiraling down. Now we are, you know, what time is it? We're right on the cusp of watching the income support expire. The moratoria on the rent and evictions expire. So the situation that I think you envision is consistent with that AWOL, Sort of, you know, it's like I called it the the economic equivalent to the herd uh, immunity right. response to the pandemic. Yeah. It's the economic equivalent. Just let let it go, let it be. You know, who, whoever survives at the end of this, any businesses left standing, anybody who still has a, a job and an in, and an income, well, you know, congratulations, you survived. Everybody else, you know, got wiped out. So. Um, There's no reason to let that happen. It doesn't have to happen. But I swear to you that with this latest maneuver, this 11th hour shenanigans that Trump is playing now does run the very real risk of of blowing up a deal, not a good deal, not a great deal, but a deal Right. That um, at least would have helped some people get through to January. Right. Or maybe then we come back and do this again. But, um, you know, once the once the defaults start, once the wave of evictions start and the missed mortgage payments and the missed car payments and the missed student loan and all that debt that's been accruing that comes due and people can't pay, then you have the possibility of this thing bleeding over into the financial system, and then you have not just a health crisis and an economic crisis, but now a financial crisis, and
1: it just it, this is what I think and a human know, crisis because people are going to be homeless and hungry yeah. and worse. I, I a housing crisis, yep. a food crisis.
0: It's the it is the perfect storm. A climate crisis. Yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. Uh, that, and I purposely didn't ask you about what Trump is doing because y- y- there there's no there there's no logic to it. There's no rhyme or reason. Nobody. You can't opine on it because it makes no sense. He should have done this months ago and said, you give everybody two thousand dollars or whatever. Um, but to do it at the uh, 13th hour, which is basically what it is, is just an insult. It's just to throw more chaos into the mix and and screw everything up even more than it already is. I twist the knife in Mitch McConnell, I think. That too. Yeah. And you know what? If that works, good. If it helps Warnock and Ossoff get elected in Georgia on January 5th, um, please bring it on uh, because we really need them. Because the only way anything, any of this gets done is if Mitch McConnell is not the Senate majority leader. Stephanie Kelton, you're amazing. Thank you so much for thank joining you. us. You're a national treasure. I appreciate you so much. So thank you. Anytime Nicole. Happy holidays. Thank you. Stephanie Kelton. Her new book is The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory, and the Birth of the People's Economy. I hope someone gave President-elect Joe Biden a copy of that for Christmas. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Bradcast. Brad and Desi are taking the week off, but I'll be back here for the next couple of shows, keeping us all up to date with any movement from Trump and Congress. Keep your fingers crossed. And remember, nine days until Congress affirms the Electoral College results, 23 days until Biden is inaugurated and Trump is evicted. I'll be back tomorrow with the latest news and fascinating conversation. Until then, I'm Nicole Sandler in for Brad and Desi. Good luck, America.